The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. I hope, I hope that you had an incredible Thanksgiving. And I hope, I know that a lot of times Thanksgiving can be kind of chaotic. And uh, I hope that in the midst of that, that you were able to truly stop and take a moment to consider all of the things in your life that you have to be thankful for. We have so, so much. And part of that for me, I just want to be honest, as I looked at my life, is, is my church family. I, as I think about the people that, that God has brought into my life, my family's life, as a result of our church, I am so incredibly grateful. And um, I'm grateful for you, but more than you, I'm grateful for the God who brought us together. I'm grateful that he would look down on me, forgive me, love me, and save me. Um, Thanksgiving growing up was never one of my favorite holidays. I just didn't really love the food all that much. But as, as uh, I've kind of grown up, uh, I guess, I'm starting to realize how much thankfulness is tied to our walk as Christians. And I'm beginning to love, uh, love Thanksgiving. So as um, we begin this morning, as we begin and we shift gears and looking at this, our text this morning, I just wanted us as a, as a church to stop and take a moment and just express our gratefulness. And, and what I wanted to do is I just wanted to pray. And more specifically, I wanted to pray the words of Isaiah 12 as we begin our time. And so I just want to ask you just right where you are, would you bow your heads with me and let's come to the Lord and with grateful hearts. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the words of Isaiah 12. It says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, you, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, you are my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For you, God, are my strength and my song. And you have become my salvation. I give thanks to you, Lord. I call on your name. I will make known your deeds among the peoples, proclaiming that your name is exalted. I sing praises to you, Lord, for you have done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. I will shout for joy, sing for joy, and for great in our midst is the Holy One of Israel. God, we love you, we thank you, we worship you, and it's in your Son's name that we are able to approach you in gratitude this morning, and it's in his name that we pray, amen, amen. Church, if you have your Bibles with you, would you grab them? And turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, if you are here and you, don't, you didn't bring your Bible, uh, there should be one around you. I'd love to lend you one. There should be a hardback black one somewhere around you. Um, and if you're here and you don't own a Bible, I would love to give you one. Uh, we have had the privilege as a church to give away cases of Bibles since we began. We love this. And so if you're here and you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. No strings attached. Just take it. 
Just take it. It's, it's our honor as a church. Uh, we have covered a ton of ground in 1 Corinthians up to this point. Uh, and, and today we're going to be turning our attention to the end of chapter 11, which is a pretty familiar passage. Uh, but listen, let me give you a heads up on where we're going. We are actually going to be pushing the pause button on 1 Corinthians after this week because next week starts Advent. Uh, I cannot wait. Uh, I said Thanksgiving growing up was never my favorite, but the Advent season, that was always my favorite. So we're shifting into Advent uh, next week, and we're putting the pause button on, but get this, when we come back after the first of the year, we're going to be jumping into 1 Corinthians 12, talking specifically about spiritual gifts. This is timely for us, so I cannot wait. But for this morning, like I said, we're going to be looking at a familiar passage. Um, And up to this point, we have seen Paul deal with this on repeat. This idea that, that he's calling this church to live their lives in a way that brings about unity. And to do everything in their power to live their lives in a way that wouldn't cause division. Paul has been just driving this in. And this is especially true, as we've seen, is that when they come together as the church and they gather for worship, Paul's driving them here to unity. And just in case I even need to say this, this is not a for them back then problem. But this is a timely issue for us. Unity in his church in the body of Christ. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, it is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Now, he's speaking specifically to race here, but it's so much more than just race. It's socioeconomic, it's, it's social status, it's age, it's stage, it's ethnicity. Unfortunately, there's still so much truth in Martin Luther King Jr.'s words. There's still so much truth here. This morning, we are going to hone in specifically on the Lord's Supper or communion. And as we do, it's going to drive our, our, us to have a different view, a more expanded view of the Lord's Supper. And so let's dig in this morning. We're going to start in verse 17. Verse 17 says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. I do not commend you. Right off the bat, we get the tone. Paul's saying, I don't like this. I'm not commending you for this. This is not good. Then in verse 18, he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear. Now, let's pause there. All throughout this letter, we've been getting references that Paul's been getting uh, reports from, his church, from this church. Keep in mind, Paul planted this church three years prior to this. He loved this church, and, and he makes references to all these progress reports that he's getting about this church. And um, the reports aren't great. They're not great. As, as he references here, as he says, I hear that there are divisions among you. So right off the bat, he drops into the matter at hand, division. Division. I hear there, there are divisions among you. Now, starting in verse 20, he's going to dive in and kind of unpack here what he means by division. He's going to tell us a little bit about the report that he's been getting about this church. But before he does that, it, just like Paul does so often, he's going to just jump on a quick rabbit trail. 
So with me, would you chase that rabbit with me? He says this, I, um, in verse, the end of verse 18, and I believe it in part. Verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So Paul here is about to rebuke them for division. And before he does, he reminds them of what we're going to call this morning necessary division. So he's about to rebuke them for division, but before he does, he's going to remind us of something called necessary division. Necessary division is not man-made. It's not something that's based on how much money you have in the bank, what car you drive, what house you live in, what zip code you live in, the clothes you wear, your skin color, your age, your gender. It's not based on any of that stuff that we typically want to divide ourselves over. Uh, necessary divisions, not about any of that. Instead, Paul says, there must be factions among you. Why? In order that those who are genuine might be recognized. So what is that? What is that? So it reminds me of Jesus's teaching. I want to highlight just two. Uh, first in Matthew 10, he says, in this, this, this teaching he's giving, he says, do you not think, I didn't come to bring peace on this earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is Matthew 10, 34. For I have come to set man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Right? And we get Jesus just unpacking this. And now I want to ask you, did Jesus come to divide the world? Well, in a way, and in Jesus' words, yes. He, 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 did, he came to separate those who are in him from those who are against him. He came um, to, to divide those who would be his from those who would be set out against him. It also reminds me, I think even more clearly, of his teaching in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, he's teaching, Jesus here is teaching about the end, about the final judgment, and in Matthew 25, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Painting this picture of the end. Now listen to this. Before him will be gathered all nations. And what will he do? He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Church, that's necessary division. That division is what separates us from the world as we cling to Christ. That division separates us from the world and separates us unto Christ. That is necessary division. And if you and I are not willing to be separate from the world, if you and I are not willing to be separated out and separated unto Christ, then we cannot be him, his. In a world of goats, the sheep will be separated, and this is what we're going to call necessary division. Um, so as we move forward, we need to realize that some division is necessary. Some division is necessary. In other words, you have been as a follower of Christ, called out and set apart. I want you to do something for me. I want you to look around this room. Make everyone uncomfortable. Just look at them. Like three of you are doing it. Come on. Look around. 
What you are looking at right now is a called out and set apart people. Peter calls the people who you just looked at a royal priesthood. Set apart. This is necessary division. Follow me. That's not the division that Paul was getting in his reports. It wasn't necessary division here. It wasn't that Paul was getting reports that was saying, this church is just too radically set apart from the world. As we've seen in this letter, that's not what was happening here. No, church, we're going to shift from dealing with necessary division to looking at what we'll call unnecessary division. Let's look at verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? I'm putting Paul's emphasis here. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? As if you were wondering Paul's answer, no, I will not. Now, there's some contextual things going on here. And, and maybe as I read that, you're thinking, you're looking over at our table. And you see this little basket of little bread. You see this little cup to dip it in. And you're thinking, I must be missing something. How was this church getting their fill on that? Drunkenness? On that, I must be missing, we must be missing something from the way that the early church celebrated communion because this does not translate. Um, and hear me, any, when I read this, any reference to hunger or intoxication just seems absolutely crazy when you think about the way the modern church celebrates communion. And as we read that, you are right because the reality is, is that the way that we celebrate communion today is very different from the way it was celebrated in the early church. Today, 99.9999, I don't have the stats, but you get it, percent of churches celebrate communion by a little piece of bread, a little cracker, a little wafer, right? And, and a little cup that you either dip or sip. It's not a filling mill. It's not an occasion for gluttony, Right? This is, not, this is not our issue. Our issue. But in the early church, in the ancient city of Corinth, uh, the way they did communion was a bit different. See, in the early church, they would celebrate with large banquets. Large banquets. The church would come together. Uh, the book of Acts shows us that the early church would come together like this often, celebrate meals. The book of Jude gives us the name for it. They, they would call these meals love feasts in the book of Jude. Um, and, and at the high point of these meals, so they eat together, it's awesome, we're eating all this food. At the high point, it all culminated in communion, the Lord's Supper. So they would feast together, and then they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so what was happening here in this church is that this church was beginning to show favoritism. This church was beginning to show preferential treatment to certain members who happened to be rich and more privileged in the congregation. They were getting more uh, preferential treatment. See, in the, in the early church, 
The Lord's Supper was celebrated and observed in homes. And in this culture and in this context, it would have been completely normal, expected that people of of wealth or, or privilege or prominence in the culture, that they would eat first, that they would be showed honor first, that this is just what the culture did. And we read in our text that one goes hungry, another gets drunk. So what was happening is they were not only observing that, but the people who were eating first were eating a lot. They were eating to their fill. They were drinking to excess. Now, that in and of itself is bad enough. That this occasion, the giver of good gifts, like God gives us good food and good drink, and, and these people in this church were, were using these good gifts and good drink for gluttony and idolatry instead of using it as a, as a way to worship the God who gave them the gifts. Like, that's bad enough. But that wasn't even the worst part of it because here they were eating until they had their fill and then some and in their gluttony they were leaving nothing for the others. And in this culture that was completely fine. In this culture that would have been expected in common and it would have only been natural for the church to just do what the culture does. But the gospel demanded a radical departure from that way of treating people in the culture. The gospel demanded that they think differently about this. I think of the book of James. In James, James deals with the same thing. James rebukes the church for showing favoritism toward the wealthy, giving the wealthy the good seats, the places of honor and at the expense of the poor in the community. And James is so clear in rebuking this, and so is Paul. They say this might be normal in the culture that we find ourselves in. This might be acceptable, but Jesus came and he proclaimed a different way. And that's what's unfolding before us in this. And so Paul, you have to love Paul's response and his sarcasm. What? What? Is this what you do at the Lord's Supper? If it is, then stay home. Like, if you're going to come and make this about yourself, stay home. If you're going to come and make this about furthering your social status or furthering your pampering the rich or trampling the poor, then stay home. In fact, it's better for you to stay home because if you're not there eating up all the food, you're going to leave more for those who are in need. Why don't you just stay home? It's as though Paul is reminding us, we have a selfless Savior. That table represents the selfless actions of a selfless Savior. How dare we approach it with selfishness? It's as though Paul is just driving us to remember this. And it's important for us to realize, again, some division is necessary. Some division is, is done by God himself. Like I said, set apart, called out, all of us set apart. That's necessary division. But this was not that. This was unnecessary division in this church. This was a people in this church who were putting up barriers, unnecessary barriers up between themselves. This was a people, a church that was dividing themselves. This was a church that was letting the ways of the world creep in, and they were now acting like the world. 
That's what was on display. This was a church that was driving an anti-gospel wedge right into their community. That's what was on display here. In other words, the, the message of the gospel, it might divide us. In fact, it will. Christ said it will. There will be separation from sheep and goats. He's told us this much. That is necessary division. That is division because of, brought on because of the gospel. But there's another kind of division. Not sheep from goats, but sheep from sheep. There's another kind of division, rich from the poor, black from the white, young from the old. That division is not brought on by the gospel. In fact, that division is anti-gospel. It stands against the gospel. And again, I'll start, I'll just say with what I said at the beginning. This is not a problem for them back then. Only. This is a problem, and it's so prevalent for us today. And I wanted us just to pause and do a little heart work here. Um, I want you to consider this morning the contempt you might have for an individual because they're in a different financial bracket than you are. I want to get really specific. For those in this room who have much, for those in this room who have much, would you for a moment consider the thoughts that you might be having to those who have little? Consider the judgments. Consider the ways that, that maybe you belittle them and show privilege to those who are more like you. On the other side of that, for those in this room who might be struggling financially, would you just for a moment consider the thoughts that, that you might be having for that first group of people I just mentioned? Would you just for a moment consider the way that you might be bitter against, that you might be looking down on them? Consider your friendships. Consider those, how often is it that financial status is one of the single most, the largest determining factors to determine whether we are close friends or just kind of acquaintances? This is the way the world operates. This is not the way the church is operating. Um, this can be such a major source of division in the church from both ends of the financial spectrum. From both ends. Um, I want you to think of something for a moment. Think about the communion table. Um, Sometimes when we approach the table, we get really introspective, which is a great thing. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. Um, <clears throat> but the Lord's Supper, this, this table, not only does it proclaim the gospel to us, ourselves, not only when we approach that do, do we remember the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that our sins are forgiven in him, that he will return again. Not only is all that true when we approach this table, but as we approach this table, it proclaims the gospel to each other. Now, here's what I mean by this. If you notice that when we approach the table, all of us, um, no matter your age, no matter your bank account, no matter your zip code, your gender, all of us approach the table in the same way. 
all of us approach the table on the same level. Brother and sister. That was radical back then in its church. It's radical today. Brother and sister. It puts us side by side, from the salesman to the pastor, from the poor to the wealthy, from the woman to the man, from the white, black, Hispanic, Indian, Asian, regardless of any distinction, we are brother and sister. And that is why any abuse of this table, any way that we distort that table as, as was happening here in this text is disgusting because it takes something that is meant to proclaim the gospel and instead it is proclaiming something anti-gospel. This is why Paul is not commending them for this one. It reminds me of Ephesians 4. This beautiful passage, Paul is urging them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that they have received. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is over all, through all, and in all. The Lord's Supper proclaims that. The Lord's Supper proclaims that. It proclaims the gospel. The Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel not just to ourselves, but as we approach the table, it proclaims it to our family, that we are one in him and that there is no unnecessary division in Christ. Now, I want us to skip for a moment to verse 27. We're going to come back to verse 23. We're going to end with that this morning. But would you just skip down to verse 27? It says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, I want to just highlight a few things here. Um, First, notice that Paul says, in an unworthy manner. Unworthy manner. Paul here is driving to the heart, and he's saying loudly and clearly, it matters how you take the Lord's Supper. It matters why you take the Lord's Supper. When you approach this table, are you indifferent or apathetic? Or are you repentant? When you approach this table, church, we should be broken for the sin in our lives. We should approach this table with repentance. Notice here that Paul does not say as worthy people. He, he, this is a huge misunderstanding from this text because Paul is not saying unworthy people are guilty before the Lord. Because hear me, I, we need to say this loud and clear. Through Jesus Christ, through um, the righteousness that he gave, the righteousness of Christ that he gave to you through the cross, hear me, you are worthy. Amen. Amen. Not in and of yourself, but through him. Because he is worthy, you are worthy. You are worthy. Paul is talking to believers here. And he is calling those who have been made worthy through Christ to remember Christ in communion in a worthy manner. In other words, Paul is not calling them to find reasons in themselves that they are worthy to take communion. No. 
but to look to Christ, the worthy one, and to come to him with repentant hearts. That's the call. That's how we are to approach the table. I heard this said, and I love this. It says, um, if you are afflicted by your sin, the table will be a comfort. And if you are comfortable in your sin, the table will be an affliction. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, Paul here is saying, church, don't approach the table in an unworthy manner. Instead, listen to verse 28 here. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and and drink of the cup. So Paul here is calling them to self-examination. Self-examination. To examine themselves before they approach the table. Again, not to examine themselves in order that they might find something in themselves that make them worthy. That's not it. No, they are to examine themselves and recognize their great need for Jesus Christ as they approach the table. And with that heart, we approach the table to eat and to drink. I want to be clear. There is one time, there is one reason that a Christian should refrain from taking the Lord's Supper. There is one time that a Christian should not approach the table, and that's when we examine ourselves and we find ourselves hardened and apathetic toward the gospel, apathetic towards sin, apathetic to the work of Christ on the cross that's represented at the table. When there is an apathy in us, about our relationship with God and or our relationship with each other. We must do some personal examinations before we approach this table. Paul is very clear on this, that we might come to the table with a repentant heart. It must begin with self-examination. But it's more than that. It doesn't end there. Listen to verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without, what, discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Not only is there, the person needs to kind of self-examine before approaching this table, but here says, here Paul says, there should be a corporate, I'll call it church examination, as we approach the table. Paul warns here against eating and drinking from the table without discerning the body. This is a reference to the church. This is a reference to the body of Christ. So when we approach this table, Paul is saying, not only are you to look in, you're to look around. Not only are you to look in, but you are to look around. Division in the church is a lousy proclamation of the gospel. It is a lousy proclamation of the gospel. So Paul says, look around. Is there division? Is there strife? Are there things that need to be addressed? As Christians, we are not only concerned with ourselves. We are not only called to make sure that we're, we're good, Jesus and I are good. That's not only our calling. No, we are called to also look around, to look around and to invest ourselves in proclaiming unity in the body around us. That is our call. We are called to care for one another, care that we're proclaiming the gospel well as we approach these tables. Um, There's a 
a quote I want to read to you. This is from D.A. Carson in a book called Love in Hard Places. He says this, The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. The truth is, is that we, are, we have a vested interest in each other because Christ took a vested interest in us. And the Lord's Supper proclaims to the world that we are united in Christ. We are one. We are his body, united in our diversity. That's what this claims. And because of this, um, this charge comes. Paul gives us now a, a pretty substantial warning. Listen, listen to this. He says, he will eat and drink, what? Judgment on himself. And then he says this. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul references here a judgment. He says that we eat and we drink judgment on ourselves. And the judgment here that Paul is referencing is God's judgment, divine judgment on our apathy and on our division. In this Corinthian church, this judgment had even caused sickness and death. Now, I want to be careful here because this text is not necessarily prescriptive, meaning um, this text does not say that we, as we approach this table in an unworthy manner, that we will get sick and die. This text does not say this. This, this, it doesn't, I've heard it be used like this, but, but as you read this text, it doesn't call for that. However, it is saying that it did result in that kind of judgment for these people in the Corinthian church. It will result in judgment of some kind because our God takes this seriously. Now, could it result in us getting sick? We have to say yes to that because it did here. I mean, it absolutely could. But does this text tell us that it will? No, not necessarily. But I believe there is something even bigger going on here. Something that we might miss, especially because we're American. And this is not a slam on Americans. It's just we are pretty highly individualistic. But here as we look at this, God's judgment was corporate. It was communal. Uh, in, in other words, um, we see here that there was this systemic favoritism being shown in this church to those who were more wealthy. And this judgment by God was not given to just those who were doing it. This judgment was given to the whole community. In other words, the sin in the camp affects the whole camp. That's what we see here. And, and like I said, we're, we're kind of a highly individualistic culture. And so we have a much, under, much easier time understanding when we talked about self-examination 
examining ourselves as we approach the table, we, we get that. We can see that uh, much easier. We have a much more difficult time talking about church examination. Um, we have a much more difficult time thinking about God judging us corporately and not just individually. But in Scripture, we see both. And that's why Paul calls us to take this seriously, to calls us to self-examination and also to church examination, that we care about the family that God has placed us in. You're not consumers here. You're part of this family. And Paul calls us to take that seriously, take the body of Christ, the church, seriously as we approach the table. And Paul says, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, if we examine ourselves in our hearts before the Lord, you're not going to experience that kind of divine judgment. Paul says, examine yourselves. And then he says this, this is so important, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Um, I think of um, any good father with his child. When, when When a loving father disciplines a child, that doesn't make that child any less of his child. In fact, it shows the father's love for that child when it's done in love. The same is true with our heavenly father who disciplines his children, not making us any less of his children. In fact, God's word says that it demonstrates, it reveals the father's love for us that he disciplines us. We are blessed that we're disciplined by the father. And that's what's on display here. So here at, at Stone Oak, we take communion almost every week. Uh, and we love this. Uh, now, we don't do it the way they did in the early church with a banquet. Maybe we should. That would be kind of fun. Uh, we, don't, we don't do that here. We don't tag it on to the end of a big feast. But we do take it every week. And we love the opportunity to take communion almost every week. And hear me, as we approach this table, we need to repent if we've taken this lightly or mundane. I mean, there's nothing mundane about the work of Christ, and there is nothing light about the sin that it covered. Nothing. And we need to repent for the sin in our lives. We need to examine ourselves and place our sin before him. Ask the Lord that he would forgive us and receive the comfort that comes from his forgiveness and love. That needs to be our heart. We also need to examine our relationships, do a little church examination. Um, If there's conflict or sin, we need to bring that before the Lord. And hear me, we might need to bring it before each other. This is what God's word calls us to, to be instruments of unity. That we don't write this off and say, someone else will worry about the unity in this church. That's the pastor's job. No, that's your job. And we take this seriously, that we care for each other enough to be instruments of unity here at Stone Oak Bible. And if you're here, and if you're just honest, and you say, you know what, I am really just kind of apathetic toward this. I really don't care at this time. I... I'm just not as bothered by my sin as I should be. I'm not 
bothered by the strain in, in the relationships around me, if you're here and you're just kind of apathetic towards your relationship with God, you're apathetic towards your relationships with the people in this room, um, as we looked at God's word this morning, I encourage you to pass as we take communion this morning. I know that sounds weird and heavy, but I'm just, how can we not say that after reading God's word? As we see in our text, although you and I can be apathetic toward this sometimes, this text shows us that our God is not apathetic about this, that he takes this seriously, and so I encourage you to refrain. And if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're, if you're here, as we take communion, I encourage you just to pray and to reflect, to do a little self-examination on what we talked about this morning. The band is going to come up here, and, and they're going to lead us in, in this song. And as they, as they lead us, um, just right where you are, I just encourage you to begin to reflect and to pray, to do some self-examination. Um, now, as I promised, I want to drop back now into verse 23. Verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, just for a moment. I know this might be a familiar verse. Jesus is literally in this moment holding in his hand this bread. And he he looks down on it, he takes it, and he breaks it, he tears it. And as he breaks it and tears it into pieces, he makes this radical statement, this is my body that is broken for you. And understanding the fullness of this statement, understanding this was the night that he would be betrayed. Understanding that this was the moment that his body was literally going to be broken, he passes the bread. He passes the bread and he says, eat this. Break this bread in, in remembrance of me. Remember me. Remember my love for you. Remember the work that I accomplished for you. Remember the cross. Remember the sacrifice. Remember And then in verse 5, it says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus looks down at this cup, this dark red, blood red cup. He looks at that. He knew, church, that his blood was about to be spilled. He knew the weight of this moment that he was about to be betrayed in understanding that, understanding the weight of the moment. He looked down at this cup, holds it up, understanding full well what what it meant when he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Meaning, this new covenant is only available to you through my sacrifice. Through my blood, I am literally holding up the symbol for the forgiveness of your sins. So take it 
and drink it and remember me. Remember my work. Remember God's grace and his love for you. Remember my sacrifice. Remember that you are forgiven. Remember the new covenant and remember that I am going to come back again. Remember this. And I love this. Listen to this in in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This table is a proclamation of the gospel. This table proclaims God's, it just proclaims God's great love for us, the forgiveness of our sins, the unity of the church, and the return of Jesus Christ. That's what this table proclaims. And so as we take this communion this morning, we proclaim that to ourselves, and we proclaim it to each other. And we proclaim it to a watching world who have no idea what true unity looks like. We proclaim it. Let me pray for us. And then let's remember Jesus through communion together this morning. God, you are so good and your love for us is perfect. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that we can know you. Thank you for your love and for your grace and for your mercy on us. And Lord, thank you for this table. Thank you for the gospel reminder. And right now I pray for our hearts. I ask that those who may have been apathetic, that you would begin through your spirit to soften our hearts. I pray that for those who were far from you, that you would bring them near. I pray that we are all able to approach your table with repentant hearts.